be seated. Questions spark conversation and stimulate learning. When we ask, we learn. Jesus asked many questions during his ministry, but most of Jesus' questions were not asked to learn something he didn't already know. His questions were usually asked to teach us something we need to know. What can we learn from questions Jesus asked? If you have a Bible, open it to Matthew 16. That will be our text this morning, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, pretty easy to find or on your device. It's very easy to find. You just scroll till you see Matthew. Matthew 16 will be our text today. Let me mention 100 points of light. We're starting that this week, today, tomorrow, the rest of this week. Many of you have signed up for one or multiple of the three areas. And we want, as we prayed earlier, to be in this community, not just this week, beyond this week, but certainly as a focused, concentrated effort of this congregation, this week we want to be in the community. We have teams Monday through Friday delivering meals uh, to hundreds of people, literally hundreds of people this week as a part of Edmund Mobile Meals. We have people praying for our community and our church and sending encouraging notes and cards and texts. We have people who are very intentionally neighboring, and that means they are getting to know the neighbors around them, they are talking to them, they are serving them, they are sharing Jesus with them. It's not too late to sign up. Our mobile meals slots are all full, I believe, but uh, you sign up for the rest of it. We have a couple of projects this coming Saturday, Saturday morning, and then this coming Sunday night as part of Sunday night for the master. We're going to deliver some care packages and do some things around the building. So we would love to have you serve and let your light shine as we think about how we can be a light in this community, as God has empowered us to be over the past 100 years. It's amazing to think that God has had a presence here with the Edmund Church of Christ for that long, and we are most thankful for that. Well, before there was the internet, before there was Google, before there was YouTube, we had these things called books. Maybe you remember. We had books. And so if you wanted information, if you had a question and you were looking for an answer, that's what you did. You opened a book or you went to a, a journal or you went to a newspaper. You tracked down uh, the answer in written form. Remember Microfish? Anybody remember that? Yeah, you go to the library and you have to look on the machine and microfilm. Well, that's where books are. They're in the library. And if you go to the library, there's one person who is especially helpful. That's the librarian. And that person can tell you, and direct you to the resources you need to answer a question or to find information. Well, in 1967, the New York Public Library started something called Ask a Librarian, and it was a service that you could call in with just any random question, and the librarian would help you, as they often do still today. Well, it's amazing, to me at least, that in this day and time when we have literally a world of information at our fingertips, that Ask a Librarian still gets over 30,000 calls a year. Just random questions. For example, one question asked was, what does it mean if I dream about being chased by an elephant? <laughs> it means you need to either run faster or wake up, I guess. I don't know. Another question, if a poisonous snake bites itself, will it die? <laughs> That's a good question, I guess. Someone called in just wanting to know how to hang wallpaper. Do you put the paste on the paper? Do you put the paste on the wall? Just random questions. I think that's interesting that people still have questions, and we all want to know where to go to find answers to our questions. 
Well, one of, the libra- one of the librarians said about this, the librarian said, there are no dumb questions. Every question presents an opportunity for a teachable moment. I like that. Every question presents an opportunity for a teachable moment. I think Jesus knew that. I think that's one of the reasons he asked so many questions. He was creating teachable moments. Not so much that he would learn something, but that those around him would learn something, and then by extension, we might learn something. Jesus asked a lot of questions, not necessarily because there was something, there was an answer that he was trying to get to so that he would know something he didn't already know. He asked a lot of questions to create teachable moments for us. And so today's question is one of those teachable moments. It's an extremely important question. It's a question that every one of us must answer, not just the people Jesus was talking to that day when we read this text, but every one of us. And the way you answer this question has eternal ramifications. Incredibly important question. Let's start in Matthew 16 and look how Jesus, uh, look and see how Jesus starts this conversation with sort of part one of the question. Verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Of course, when Jesus says, who do people say the Son of Man is, he's referring to himself. Son of Man is a title that he often used to refer to himself, and it it speaks of his humanity. And it makes sense that Jesus would refer to himself in this way, because if he just came out of the gate saying, I am the son of God, I share deity with God, people would immediately turn him off. They would say it's a, that's a blasphemer and they would you know, get him in trouble, which obviously ultimately is what happened. But Jesus began by referring to himself as the son of man and he wants to know what are people saying about me? To his disciples he says, hey, the people on the streets, the people we, we interact with, what, what are they saying about who I am? How do they answer that question? And you see, he asked this question not because he was managing the impression of him. He wasn't trying to portray a certain image and he wanted to get feedback as to whether or not he was successful in portraying that image. He wasn't a politician trying to see if his favorability scale or his likability scale was increasing or his approval rating. And he wasn't someone on social media trying to see how can I get more followers, how can I get more people to like and respond to what I'm doing. This wasn't about Jesus managing his impression. This was about a teachable moment. And this teachable moment is surrounded by and rooted in the identity of Jesus, who Jesus really is. I mean, that is at the heart of his question, Jesus's identity. And here's the thing about identity. What is identity? We all have a certain identity, right? We probably have multiple identities, not multiple personalities, multiple identities where we have different roles, we see ourselves differently, we interact differently based on who we're with, if we're with family or at work. or So we, we take on an identity, right? Your identity is a definition of yourself that you accept. It's a definition of self that everyone accepts. Think about that for a moment. Well, where does that definition come from? 
Well, that's the tricky part because it comes from a lot of different places. We allow a lot of different voices to inform that definition of self, including the people around us. We care about what people think. And we sometimes allow them to define who we are. Let me give you a non-human example, a very simple example. If I went up here to the, to the on-cue or the 7-Eleven and I went to the soda fountain and I peeled off all the labels of the sodas and I replaced them with different labels, mixed them all up, and I'm sure people have probably done this, what would happen? Well, you know, people would come there, they would grab their, their cup and they would get their ice and then they would go for their favorite beverage Maybe it's orange soda and out comes something dark brown. They're like, wait a second, that's not orange soda. They pour it out and they try again, right? It's still not orange soda. They go over there to Diet Coke, but it doesn't look like Diet Coke. It looks like Mountain Dew and they taste it. Yeah, that's not Diet Coke and they pour it out. You see, when we label something or when there is a label on something, we can call that identity, we interact with that thing or that person based on that label, based on that identity. And when the label or the identity doesn't match our perception of it, then there's a disconnect. There's something wrong. There's a problem. You see, mistaken identity leads to misguided action. If someone sees you as one thing, but in reality, you aren't that thing, that doesn't change the way they see you or react and interact with you because they do that based on their perception of you. And that happens when, when we label people. And we do that sometimes, unfortunately. When we put a label on someone and then we interact with them and treat them based on that label. But that also happens the other way. We accept labels from the world around us. And we take on identities that may or may not be accurate because that's what someone says or that's what culture says or that's what the world says. And I think this is a major problem for us today. It probably always has been a problem. Identity is always an issue. But I think today especially, and especially for some of our young people, I think this is a struggle. Who am I? What am I supposed to be and do? And, and all of these identity questions. And it's so easy with all of the voices around us to start listening to these voices. And if I have this mindset that says, I have to find out who I am, I have to find my identity. At the same time, voices are speaking into that equation saying, well, this is who you are, or this is who you should be. You shouldn't be that, you shouldn't do that, but here's the way you should go then pretty soon we begin to accept that definition of self. We take on that label. You see, the truth is, you don't have to find your identity. You were created by God with an identity. You were created as a child of God, as an image bearer of the Most High God. And it's that identity that informs every other view of self that you have. It's that identity, a child of God, an image bearer of the Most High, where you find your purpose and your meaning and your value and your worth. Not in all of those secondary forms of identity, but in who God made you to be. So don't think your job is to go out in this world and find out who you are. God created you with an identity as his child, his precious child. 
and you have worth and value, not because you're good at this or because you look this way or because you have done this, but because you were created to bear the image of God in this world. Okay, back to our question. It's all related, but I think it's important for us to to explore that idea of identity for a moment. Back to our question, Jesus asked about identity. Who do people say that I am? Well, his apostles who are there, they kind of think for a minute, well, and then they respond, verse 14, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. You see, they knew that Jesus was different, that he spoke with authority, that the things that he did were not common things. And so many people thought, yeah, he is, he's an important person in God's kingdom. We don't exactly know who he is, but he's definitely a messenger of God. Maybe he is a, a forerunner for the true Messiah. Maybe, in fact, he is John the Baptist who's come back. Maybe he's one of the old prophets like Elijah or Jeremiah who has come back to join us. Almost reincarnated, brought back from the dead to pave the way, to prepare the path for the true Messiah. They knew he was different, but they didn't really know who he was. That sounds like the world today, doesn't it? Many people in the world have heard the name Jesus. Maybe they can even quote some of the things Jesus said. Maybe they even live by some of the things Jesus said, either on purpose or by accident. But maybe they really don't know who Jesus is. They really can't pinpoint his identity. And maybe they stick on him a label and then interact with that identity, but maybe it's not right. You see, when Jesus asked, what do people say, or who do people say that I am, their answers weren't exactly right, were they? Of course, he's a messenger of God. But he's not preparing the way for the Messiah. And so that gets to the next part. When Jesus turns to his apostles and he says, okay, now it's your turn. Verse 15, what about you? Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? In other words, guys, you've been with me, you've heard me teach, you've seen these miracles, you've interacted with me, you've traveled with me, you've, you've uh, eaten meals with me. What about you? Who do you think I am? When it comes to my identity, what would you say? And of course, Peter, the outspoken one, who often gets it wrong, speaks up. And this time, he gets it exactly right. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Some versions say you are the Christ. You are the, that word means anointed one. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. You are the anointed one, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. Jesus says, Peter, you are exactly right. This confession of faith, this answer that Peter gives, it is a pinnacle moment in the gospel story. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, it is the turning point. It is the hinge. Everything else from this point on funnels directly to Jerusalem and to the cross. And it is the truth of that statement Peter makes that gives the cross its power. You see, otherwise, Jesus is just a guy who was crucified on a cross a would-be Messiah, and his death makes no difference. 
If what Peter said is true, though, then it makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference in your world. You see, Jesus went to the cross, the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that people expected to bring a military presence, a governmental presence to overthrow Rome. He didn't do any of that. Instead, he went to the cross and gave his life. And because he is the Messiah, that sacrificial death gives you hope, gives you life. But back to our question, who is Jesus? It's an important question. You see, it's a question that must be answered not just by those guys sitting around Jesus at Caesarea Philippi that day 2,000 years ago. It is a question that must be answered by you and by me, by every one of us. And how you answer this question has ramifications on your life, this life, but also the next life. It has eternal implications. And remember, we said earlier, mistaken identity that leads to misguided actions. When we get this question wrong, when we miss this question, then it changes everything for us because we interact with Jesus in a way that isn't correct, in a way that isn't true. But when we get this question right, when we see him as Messiah, when we accept his lordship over our life, then that begins to inform how we live. It begins to shape our actions. So how do you answer this question? Everyone has to answer this question. And I think if you break it down, you can choose one of three options. And maybe you've heard this before. This isn't original with me, but I think it, it kind of boils down to these options. Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. Right? It's got to be pretty much one of those three. Either Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. I mean, think about it. Historians generally agree that there was a man named Jesus who lived in the first century in this region that he was called Christ by many people, and that ultimately he was crucified by Pilate. Most historians agree. And so unless you're a, a conspiracy theorist, which yeah, is pretty popular these days, but unless you're a conspiracy theorist, then you have to kind of get on board that, yeah, there was a guy named Jesus who lived in the Judean region in the first century who was called the Christ and who died on a cross. So then what do you do with that information? Who was he? Who is he? Well, maybe he was just a storyteller. Maybe he just wove this elaborate web of lies and deceit. Maybe he knew just enough of his Hebrew Bible to pick and choose some verses that would kind of point to him and people would go, oh, that makes sense. Maybe he just had this story. And this story was so far-fetched that he began to believe it himself. And maybe he didn't even know that he was lying because it was true to him, and so he was living out his truth. And the miracles he did, well, they were just sort of elaborate magic tricks. You know, smoke and mirrors, sleight of hand. Yeah, he had to somehow get Lazarus to fake like he was dead and smell like a decaying corpse, but maybe he was able to pull that off as he raised Lazarus from the dead. 
So maybe Jesus was just a liar. Maybe it's all just make-believe. It's all just a tale, a story. Or maybe Jesus was just a little bit, a few notches right of center. Maybe he was, you know, nuttier than a five-pound fruitcake. Maybe he was a lunatic, right? Maybe he didn't, maybe he wasn't really the Messiah. He just had a Messiah complex. After all, he did say some pretty crazy things, didn't he? If you want to be great, you got to be a servant. If you want to be first, you got to be last. If someone hits you on one side of your face, turn to them the other side of your face. If someone's cursing you, you should pray for them. I mean, those are crazy things. Those will raise some eyebrows. Maybe Jesus was just a little bit, you know, a little crazy. That would explain some things, right? Never mind that he had a huge following. Never mind that many people testified with their lives about his validity and the validity of his miracles and resurrection. Maybe he was just a lunatic. Or maybe Jesus is who he says he is. Maybe, as Peter put it, he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. After all, from that day that Mary discovered the empty tomb until now, many people have believed it. Countless people have believed it, and they have testified to its validity. And think about it, in that day and time when the world power Rome looked like it would last forever, nothing could ever bring the Roman Empire down. And then there was this little clan of Christ followers, you know, just this small group of people that surely would dissolve and go away. What happened to the Roman Empire? It's no more. It went down in defeat. What happened to that little clan of men and women who were trying to honor and follow Jesus? <laughs> it's going strong, and it has been. Makes you think, doesn't it? I think about the apostles themselves. To me, they and their lives are one of the strongest representations of the validity of the resurrection of Jesus. When Jesus is being taken away and, and arrested and crucified, where are they? John 20 says they are behind locked doors. They are afraid. They are fearful. They don't know what to do. But what happens after the resurrection? What happens after they see the resurrected Christ? Everything changes, doesn't it? You see, before when the heat was turned up, they ran. They denied knowing Christ they ran from, from trouble. But now, all of a sudden, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're filled with fire. And you can do whatever you want to them. They are not going to run. They are not going to deny Christ. They are going to bear witness to what they saw. Not just a story they heard that sounded like it could be true. No, they are witnesses. In fact, that word is used throughout Acts. They are witnesses. They are telling what they saw. They interacted with the resurrected Christ and they want you to know that they believe it, that it's true. And in the New Testament, in the Greek, that word witness, it's the same word for martyr. They were willing to die, willing to die because they knew that what they saw, what they experienced was true. It's a little bit of a change from where they were before, right? What explains that transformation? 
Do you think they just suddenly said, you know, guys, we've, we've gone this far with this charade. We should just keep it going. I know, but we're going to get killed. I know, but we, you know, we care about what people think, and we don't want them to think this wasn't real, so let's just keep up the facade. Okay, sounds good. Ready, break, let's go, get killed. No, that's ridiculous. They knew it was real, and they knew their job was to tell the world it was real. You see this dramatic shift in their lives in their testimony. And so could Jesus really be who he says he is? John wrote an entire gospel inspired by the Holy Spirit to try to convince us. We're studying John in our classes right now, our adult classes right now. And do you remember what he says at the end of his gospel in John 20, verse 31? I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. It sounds like Peter's confession, doesn't it? I've written all of these stories. I've stacked miracle upon miracle, sign upon sign, testimony upon testimony, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the chosen one, the Son of God, and by believing, you would have life in his name. You see, everyone has to answer this question. Everyone has to choose. Everyone who's ever heard the name Jesus has to decide who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? Who is the Son of Man? Who do you say he is? And how you answer that question makes all the difference. It makes all the difference in this life and in the next life. Now here's where it gets a little bit tricky. Here's what I think we do sometimes. I think in Christianity in general, and sometimes even within maybe, you know, the church or our own congregation or our own families, I'm not sure, but I've seen this. Maybe you have too. We accept the lordship of Jesus. If if my three options are Jesus was a a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord, then okay, I'll take curtain number three. He is Lord. He is Christ. He is the Son of God. But then having accepted that he is the one sent from God, we begin to shape Jesus. We begin to change Jesus' identity. We begin to slowly peel off the label and put our own label on him so that then we interact based on the label we put on him. Rather than accepting Jesus and the lordship of Jesus over every aspect of our lives, we begin to dictate who Jesus is as Lord, as Christ. And so some of us put on the best friend Jesus label. That's who Jesus is. He's my best friend, which means to us, he always tells me what I want to hear. Some of us put on the label, the bail bail bondsman Jesus. He's the guy who always gets me out of trouble. That's who Jesus is. For others, it's the prosperity Jesus. Jesus wants me to be happy. I deserve to be happy. He wants me to be happy, so he will give me whatever I want so that I'm happy. For some of us, it's the partisan politician Jesus who wears red, white, and blue, and he waves the flag, and he votes like I do. For others, it is the spiritual Jesus, the Jesus who despises religion and church and anything institutional, and he wants you to feel spiritual, and he wants you to find your truth. For others, it's the table-turning Jesus who is confrontational and combative, especially about the issues that I care about. We could go on and on. 
How many times do we try to manipulate the identity of Jesus so that it fits into my agenda? When Jesus says, who do you say that I am? He's not suggesting that you get to decide who he is. <laughs> it's not like, well, who do you say? Okay, well, who do you say? Who do you say? Okay, good, that's good. We can all have our different views of who Jesus is. The idea is not that you get a blank piece of paper and a pencil and you get to draw who Jesus is. It reminds me of that story. I'm sure you've heard it before, a little Bible class. The kids are coloring and the teacher goes over to one little girl and says, hey, what are you, what are you drawing? What are you coloring? She says, I'm coloring a picture of God. And the teacher says, well, no one, no one knows what God looks like. And she says, well, they will after I'm finished. <laughs> That's not what Jesus is saying here. He's not saying, you get to decide who I am. Who do you say I am? No. We don't determine Jesus' identity. We either accept it or we reject it. And that is his identity as the Son of God, as the Lord over every aspect of life, as the way, the truth, and the life. Knowing who Jesus is changes everything. It changes us. It's not just about Jesus' identity, it's about our identity. And that's what Jesus says to Peter. Peter makes this beautiful confession. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then what does Jesus do? He says, Peter, let me talk about who you are. Look back at our text, verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter. You are Petra. That word means rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. After Peter's confession of Christ as the Messiah, Jesus talks about Peter's identity. You are Petra. You are rock. And on this confession you just made, on this truth that I am the Messiah, my church will be established. It will be built. And Peter, you will have a role in that. You'll have an important job in the establishment, in the building of my church. You see, when we get Jesus' identity right, it impacts our identity. Now, was Peter perfect? No, in fact, it wasn't long before he kind of stumbles again, as he often did. And of course, we know he denies Jesus. He has some ups and downs, which most of us can relate to. But Peter ended up dying because he believed what he had spoken earlier about Jesus, that he was and is the Christ. In fact, tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't want to die the same way his Lord died. So if you go to Capernaum today, you can see what is believed to be Peter's house from the first century. <laughs> That's not it. <laughs> that would be a story, wouldn't it? That is actually a very, as you can see, modern church building that is built over an existing church, or was a church, that was built over a previous church that was probably built over a previous church, marking the spot of very likely where Peter lived at Capernaum. And you can see under this modern church building to the place, the location, very likely of Peter's dwelling place there at Capernaum in the first century. And it's easy to see this because, yes, from this angle, you can see 
under the building from the side, but when you're in the church building, it has a glass floor and you can see through it, which is kind of convenient. And so, as I said, churches were built over time. That's how they marked significant spots in the Bible lands, but some of the existing structure is still standing from what is believed to be Peter's house there. And there's a lot of evidence that, that speaks to the validity that this is Peter's house. What's interesting is archaeologists found, uh, instead of finding a lot of clay pots and some things you normally find in houses, they found oil lamps, which would suggest that this was more than just a house. This was a place where people came together. It is believed that this is very likely one of the very first house churches in the first century. You know what they found scribbled on the walls like graffiti that dates back to the first century? Little sayings, little expressions that declare Christ as Lord, Jesus as Christ and Lord. Think about that. That's Peter's house. The one who said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God who later, when asked, was, do you know him? Aren't you with him? Who said, I don't know him. Who later was reestablished and restored by Jesus and who would ultimately give his life because he did believe the words he spoke earlier, you are the Christ. Those words scribbled on the walls of that house, etched deeply into the heart of this man. Those words he spoke when Jesus asked him, who do you say I am? Those words that made all the difference, all the difference in the world, those words that changed everything. And so let me conclude with that question, the question Jesus asked. Who do you say Jesus is? Not that you get to determine who he is. It's another way of saying, do you accept that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? And if you do, it changes everything. You can't acknowledge that Jesus is the Christ and let it do nothing to you or let you do nothing with it. There's a disconnect there. And so what difference will your answer make in your life? Every day we have to answer that question, not just when we're baptized, certainly at that point, but every day we have to answer that question. Who is Jesus? If today you're ready to answer that for the very first time in the most positive of ways saying I declare as Peter did that he is the Christ the son of the living God and you want to give your life to him to be baptized into Christ raised to live a new life with a new identity as a follower of Jesus do that today if we can, if we can encourage you or pray for you let us do that a couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor room right behind me you can just exit through these doors make your way there they will encourage you and pray for you or you can come down to the front this morning who is Jesus? And what difference is it making in your life? Let's stand and sing.